Hello, and welcome to Cinema Sunday. I am your host, Candy Thomas, and each week I'm going to watch one of the 95 movies that have won an Oscar for Best Picture and tell you exactly what I think of them. Before I get too much further, you know I like to do a little bit of a current events update. I'm just hoping to preserve for future listeners some memory of what was happening at the time I recorded this episode. I wish I had some better news to report this week, but there's just a lot of ick out there in the world these days. Let's start in Owasso, Oklahoma, where the death of 16-year-old Nex Benedict has sparked a national outrage. Nex, who was non-binary, died a day after receiving what I will refer to as a beatdown from other students in a school bathroom. Because Oklahoma state law requires people to use the bathroom of the gender they were born with, Nex was using the girls' bathroom, which led to an encounter with female students who have reportedly bullied Nex in the past over their appearance and clothing choices. Even though the CDC has provided data showing that LGBTQ youth consistently report higher rates of bullying, Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt still signed a bill into law that barred transgender and gender-expansive youth from using bathrooms consistent with their gender identity. Critics have long warned that legislation targeting the LGBTQ community could lead to discrimination and further marginalization, which apparently includes beating them so badly, bashing their heads against a tile floor so many times that they later die from their injuries. The investigation by the Owasso police is ongoing. Former FBI informant Alexander Smirnoff was arrested and charged with lying to the Bureau about President Joe Biden and his son Hunter. He is charged with concocting fabrications about the Bidens accepting $5 million in bribes from Ukrainian energy company Burisma, which Republicans in Congress have repeatedly cited as the driving force in their efforts to impeach the president. Special counsel David Weiss has asked that Smirnov remain in custody until his trial. It is widely believed that he has high-level contacts within Russian intelligence who were involved in passing the story to him about Hunter Biden, and therefore he would be a serious flight risk if allowed to be out on bail awaiting trial. A New York jury has found the NRA is liable for financial mismanagement and that the group's former CEO, Wayne Lapierre, used corrupt practices while running the nation's most prominent gun rights group. The jury determined that Lapierre's violation of duty caused the company $5.4 million in damages, and although he's already repaid $1 million of it, he must pay the additional $4.4 million. Tens of thousands of AT&T customers were without cell service on Thursday in what the company is referring to as an outage caused by the application and execution of an incorrect process used as we were expanding our network. My guess is that somebody's about to lose their job. And finally, in the battle to become the most backward-ass, medieval, pro-life shitshow in America, this week the state of Alabama has entered the chat. Their state Supreme Court has ruled that fertilized embryos are now considered to be human babies, a ruling based entirely on their fear of God's wrath and not having one single effing shred of scientific or medical validity. The case stemmed from a couple suing because some of their eggs were accidentally destroyed at a fertility clinic. 
they argued that they considered this to be the death of a child and wanted more severe punishment. And the court agreed. But because the decision was based on Bible verses, and it seems that none of the aging old white men in the room had the slightest idea of what IVF really is, they've shot themselves in the foot. Their attempt to protect the unborn and therefore help grow the American population has instead caused fertility clinics, including the University of Alabama at Birmingham, one of the state's leading fertility specialists, to halt their IVF treatment programs altogether amid concerns their medical personnel could be at legal risk. The ruling would mean potential criminal charges for disposal or mishandling of frozen embryos and would result in only one fertilized embryo being implanted at a time. So if you live in Alabama and have struggled with fertility and you were hoping the advances in medical science would help you start a family, I'm sorry your hopes have been dashed by a collection of lawmakers who would rather beat women to death with their Bibles than allow us the autonomy to make our own medical decisions. I have said this before, and I will say it again. Every vote counts. This is happening because too many, for too long, have sat at home and not participated in the process. Get up, get your shoes on, and go vote. Every fucking time. Okay, now it's time for a movie review. (laughs) I follow the same template every week. So if you are new to the podcast, here's how it works. I tell you the basic details of the movie, things like who's in it and what's it about, and of course, where you can stream it if you want to watch it. I also answer these three questions. Does it stand the test of time? Is it Oscar worthy? And should you watch it? Or is it two hours you wish you could have back? Just as a friendly warning, I give my honest assessment of these movies, and you might not always agree with me. I like to rant about the things that irritate me, and I always seem to mix it with a heaping dose of adult language. Please be sure you listen with caution. Before we begin, I would like to thank Wikipedia and IMDb, as they are great sources of information for all things movie and Oscar-related. So with that, let's take it away. This week's Oscar-winning film is Grand Hotel. It was released April 12th of 1932. It's directed by Edmund Goulding. It stars Greta Garbo, Joan Crawford, John Barrymore, Lionel Barrymore, and Wallace Berry. It was nominated for a total of one Oscar, and it won one. It won for Best Picture. But back then, at the fifth-ever Oscar ceremony, The category was called Best Production. If you want to watch it, you're going to have to pay $3.99 to stream it on Amazon Prime Video, Vudu, or Apple TV. So what is it about? Well, surprise, it's about a hotel. This particular hotel is a high-end establishment located in Berlin, which has an interesting collection of guests. It begins with us witnessing a series of phone calls being made by various guests of the hotel, as a setup for each character's storyline. First, we meet Otto Kringlein, played by Lionel Barrymore. Kringlein has just received word from a medical specialist that he does not have long to live. 
He's on the phone asking a friend to tear up his will because he's decided to spend every penny he saved to live large while he still can. He's never going home or returning to work. He's going to see what it's like living among the rich and famous. In fact, he mentions to his friend, the head of his company is staying at the Grand Hotel as well. And maybe, just maybe, Kringlein might tell that old SOB exactly what he thinks of him. Next up is General Director Pricing, played by Wallace Berry. He is a wealthy industrialist and now the former employer of Otto Kringlein. Pricing is at the Grand Hotel, hoping to close a merger deal with the Saxonia Company, which is reliant upon him first signing a deal with the Manchester Cotton Company. If the Manchester deal falls apart, he loses all hope of merging with Saxonia. Everything is riding on this deal. Next, we meet Suzette, who is the maid-slash-personal assistant to a Russian ballerina named Grusinskaya, played by Greta Garbo. Grusinskaya is having a dip in popularity, and it's causing her mental and emotional anguish. We watch as Suzette is calling the theater to tell them she will not be there to perform this evening. She hasn't slept all night and exhausted. She can't possibly perform. Baron Felix von Geigern is calling a partner in crime, literally. He's a con man and a thief with a plan to steal expensive jewels from the ballerina's room. But the con he's running requires everyone to believe he's a very wealthy man, and he needs more money if he's going to keep up the act. Next, we move to the hotel's beautiful lobby, which always seems packed with people. The Baron is down there mingling with other guests. He seems to be well-connected and paying close attention to who comes and goes. Kringleine is arguing with the front desk about his room. Based on his outward appearance, an assumption was made that he could only afford one of the hotel's very basic low-cost rooms. He's furious and requests one of the fancy rooms. He can afford the best room they have. He has all kinds of money, and he's come a long way to stay in the most luxurious room they can offer. Pay no attention to the fact that the Baron is standing just behind him, eavesdropping on the entire conversation. N walks Flemchen. She's a stenographer who's been hired by Priceling to assist during his business meetings. She's played by Joan Crawford. She's sent up to his room and happens to ride in the same elevator with Kringleine and Baron, who both have rooms on the same floor as Priceling and Grusinskaya. Kringleine has told Baron that his days are numbered and he's ready to go out with a bang. And for the con man who's supposed to be in search of easy marks, Baron sure does let his emotions get in the way. He feels sorry for Kringleine and decides to befriend the kind, sickly man and help ensure he lives what little life he has to the fullest. Now, before I go any further, there's one really important detail that I have to tell you. And I know you're going to feel this is a little bit disconcerting. But in 1932, hotel room doors did not have automatic locking mechanisms. So there's many a time in this movie where people are just able to walk right into each other's hotel rooms, which is exactly what happens in this scene. Flemchen walks into Priceling's room, and there he is in a towel fresh out of the shower. And he's like, who are you? And she says, I'm the stenographer you hired. And she just stands there and looks at him. And he very politely asks her to step out. I'd be like, Jesus, woman, get the fuck out of my room, you weirdo. There's a quick scene between Flemchen and Baron in the hallway. 
a meet-cute where they appear to hit it off. They are both world-class flirts, and of course, he asks her out. They will meet in the hotel bar tomorrow night at 5 o'clock. I'm only telling you this because we'll circle back around to it. We finally get a glimpse of Grusinskaya. She's a beautiful woman who's sad and lonely. She seems to have an abundance of inner turmoil that stems from a career that's heading south. She's been lying in bed all day, and now Suzette is preparing everything for their departure, trying to convince her that she'll feel better once she's on stage. Grusinskaya is convinced the crowds have gotten smaller, that people no longer care about her. The fans have moved on, and it's all over for her. Others, including her manager, have now arrived in her room. It's an hour before showtime. Get your shit together, lady. It's time to go. Finally, they lie and tell her there's a line around the theater, and they expect it to be a full house, which is exactly what it takes to get her out to the car. Pricing and Flamschen are in his room preparing for the meeting with Saxonia. Like Baron, Pricing can't help but be attracted to her. It's difficult for him to keep his mind on his work, but she doesn't give him the time of day. While he's dictating a memo to her, a telegram is delivered to his room. He's just found out that the Manchester deal is off. This means he's backed into a corner. The merger with Saxonia must go through or he'll be ruined. He's too angry to continue and sends Flamschen on her way. Meanwhile, Baron has snuck into Grusinskaya's room to steal an expensive strand of pearls. He's trapped and forced to hide when the distraught ballerina returns unexpectedly after running away from the theater where she was supposed to be performing. Of course, she thinks she's alone in the room and decides she's going to take sleeping pills to help end her sad, lonely life. And Baron, being the unusually empathetic con man that he is, decides to come out of hiding and convince her not to kill herself. He tells her how beautiful she is and how much she has to live for. And within a minute or two, they are madly in love with each other. He refuses to leave her side for a moment, so she lets him stay the night with her. But now that they are romantically involved, he can't possibly steal from her. So where else will Baron turn to get the money? The next day, Pricing is in his merger meeting, trying to find a clever way to dodge questions about his deal with Manchester. He can't admit the whole thing fell apart for fear it would end the merger deal. But that isn't what tanks the whole thing. We have Pricing's ridiculous ego and his insurmountable pride to thank for that. This arrogant buffoon blows up his entire deal because he would rather be poor than admit he's wrong about anything. After spending a magical night with the Baron, Grusinskaya is a brand new person, all sunshine and rainbows and gushing with love as she invites Baron to Vienna with her, where she will be performing for the next several weeks. He is hesitant, and she knows it's because of money. He had confessed to her that he was a thief and originally intended to rob her, but that was hours ago and water under the bridge. She's like, don't worry, honey, I have plenty of money. But now that he's in love with her, Baron doesn't want to take her for granted, so he's going to find a quick way to scam someone else before he meets her on the train for Vienna. After a full day of tough negotiations, Pricing finally gets the merger pushed through, but only because he lied about landing the deal with Manchester. So now he's in a jam and needs to go to London to work out an agreement with them so the merger won't fall through. Pricing wants to celebrate his successful business deal and goes to find Flamchen, who's in the bar where she's gone to meet Baron for their five o'clock date. 
the one he invited her on, before he fell in love with another woman. Kringlein is also at the bar, getting started on his nightly routine of inebriation. Flamchen can't help but notice how dapper Kringlein looks now that he's spent a little bit of money to clean himself up. But her heart is with Baron. She's been anxiously waiting all day long to see him again. And this is where everything starts to run amok. Flamchen notices Baron is behaving differently. He's not the flirtatious, handsy scoundrel she met yesterday. In fact, he seems rather cold and distant. It's almost as if he spent last night in another woman's bed. Baron is honest with her and tells her he's in love with someone else. And she takes it remarkably well as they order drinks at the bar with Kringlein. It's then that Pricing enters the bar looking for her. He seems miffed to find her chatting with other men. He attempts to lure her away on an urgent business matter. But Baron is basically like, uh, dude, the lady is having drinks with us, so you can kindly fuck right off. That's when Kringlein spots his opening. It's time to tell his prick of a boss, who, by the way, doesn't even recognize his former bookkeeper, what an arrogant piece of shit he really is. And this was worth the wait. It's good to have Kringlein get it off his chest, but in many ways, it's also quite sad. He's a sick man, very close to death's door. So it's exhausting and painful for him to scream at Pricing and tell him all the awful things he's done to his employees. Pricing must go to London tomorrow, and he asks Flamchen to go with him. She's on to his game. She knows this isn't about stenography, and she saw how he treated Kringlein. So she decides to take advantage of the situation. Of course, she's gonna have to be well compensated, and she'll need some new clothes and shoes and a nice suit since it will be cold there. Flamchen knows she's making a deal with the devil, and she's going to have to do some unspeakable things, but a girl's got to eat. He offers to get her a room at the Grand Hotel for the night, which, no surprise, will be the one that connects with his. Baron must get his hands on some money, and soon he's running out of time, and Grusinskaya is expecting him on the train to Vienna in the morning. Kringlein offers to give him some cash, but instead, Baron suggests they put together a high-stakes poker game in Kringlein's room, being sure that he will be able to win loads of cash from unsuspecting players. But that doesn't turn out as planned. Baron ends up losing everything he had, while Kringlein has unbelievable luck and wipes out all the other players. Before too long, he's passed out drunk and his cash-filled wallet has fallen out of his pocket. Baron steals the wallet, but Kringlein has a meltdown when he comes to and realizes every single cent he's ever saved is gone. So Baron pretends to have found the wallet and gives it back to him. He'll now have to resort to some other way to get the money that he needs. Flamchen arrives in her hotel room, and it doesn't take long for Pricing to come through the connecting door to see her. He's throwing some clumsy advances at her, but he's not exactly a ladies' man, and she's not even remotely interested in him, so it's really awkward. And luckily, she's off the hook when he sees a shadow in his room. It's Baron. He snuck into Pricing's room with the intent to rob him, but has been caught in the act. There's a scuffle, and it doesn't end well for Baron. Flamchen runs screaming down the hall and into Kringlein's room looking for help. He goes to investigate what Pricing has done to Baron, and although Pricing tries to bribe him into telling a different story, Kringlein calls the police to report a murder, and Pricing is taken away in handcuffs. 
the team must hide the details of what happened to Baron from Grusinskaya because she will have an absolute fucking meltdown if she finds out he won't be meeting her on the train to Vienna. They managed to get her out of the Grand Hotel the next morning without anyone telling her what happened, and she's last seen heading to the train station, believing her true love will meet her there. Kringleine and Flamchen are discussing what to do next when he offers to take her to Paris. She wants to travel, but has no money. He has money and a very short time to live. So they team up and leave the Grand Hotel together. Question one, does Grand Hotel stand the test of time? I think this is a fantastic movie with a strong story from start to finish. And yes, I think today's audience would enjoy it every bit as much as they did 90 years ago. I think it packs a little too much emotional attachment into a short period of time. Most people don't fall in love in just a few hours, but each of these characters have noticeably empty spaces in their lives, so maybe they're just hungry to fill them. At the time of its release, the film was praised for its art direction and production quality. The lobby scene centers around a circular service desk that allows the audience to watch the action from all around, with the characters coming and going from all directions. It changed the way sets were built from that point forward. One of the things I like the most is the clothing. Both Flamchen and Grusinskaya have flawless wardrobes, just the most beautiful fashion choices. And it helps that both of these women are tall and very thin and everything looks amazing on them. Question two, is it Oscar worthy? Yes, of course it is, but let me clarify that. The other movies nominated that year were Aerosmith, Bad Girl, The Champ, Five Star Final, One Hour With You, Shanghai Surprise, and The Smiling Lieutenant. Now, I do think that Grand Hotel is an excellent movie, and I can easily say that it's Oscar worthy. But in fairness, I haven't seen any of these other movies, so I can't be 100% certain that one of them wasn't more Oscar worthy. I know two things for certain when I look at this list. The Smiling Lieutenant is a musical comedy starring Maurice Chevalier and Claudette Colbert. That alone tells me all I need to know, and I would for sure watch that one. The Champ was remade in 1979, starring John Voight and a very young Ricky Schroeder. I have seen that version, and it will rip your heart clean out of your chest. But being replicated decades later is a sign that the original was probably an excellent movie. Grand Hotel was only nominated for one award, which was Best Picture. It is the only movie in Oscar history to win in that category without being nominated for any other awards. That feat has never been repeated in the past 90 years. Back at the Fifth Academy Awards, there were only 12 categories, so it was impossible for Grand Hotel to be nominated in what I think would be the really obvious categories, like costumes or Best Original Score. They didn't even have Best Supporting Actor or Actress categories which would have been what all of these performers would have been nominated for since it was an ensemble cast. Grand Hotel is also the first of five movies in history to win a Best Picture Award without being nominated in the Best Director category. The others are Driving Miss Daisy, Argo, Green Book, and Coda. Question three, should you watch it? Absolutely. This is a great film. It's well acted and moves along at a really nice pace. 
I was having dinner with a coworker the other night, and she was saying, what's great about these old movies is that they have such wonderful stories, because they had to. Back then, there wasn't any CGI or car chases or big fight scenes or gun battles or epic space travel. So the story had to be compelling. And Grand Hotel is just that. This cast was a really stacked group of top actors at the time. To have both Barrymore brothers together was a coup for the studio. And while I think Lionel had a character with a little more substance, I think both are excellent in this movie. But the one person I want to talk about for a quick minute is Joan Crawford. Sadly, I only know of Joan Crawford from when she was much older. And when I try to picture her in my mind, I only see the image of Faye Dunaway playing her in the movie Mommy Dearest. That picture, for some reason, is burned into my brain. And she had those thick, dark eyebrows that made her look a little bit evil. But this is Joan Crawford when she was in her 20s, and she's gorgeous. When she came on screen, I didn't even know who she was. She looked nothing like what I imagined she was supposed to look like. And I certainly have never given her credit for her lengthy career. She appeared in 29 movies in just four years. Now, those were silent films, so clearly they were easier to crank out at a rapid pace. But once we moved to speaking parts, Joan still acted in 60 more films over the next 40 years. Add that to the more than 20 appearances in TV shows and specials in the 50s and 60s. But wait, there's more. She was also elected to the board of Pepsi-Cola in 1959. And by 1966, it was estimated she was traveling over 100,000 miles per year on behalf of the company. She remained a highly contributing employee until her retirement from the board in 1973 at the age of 65. Say what you will about her, and she did go to her grave with many unflattering rumors being whispered about her. But no one can doubt that Joan Crawford was a very hard worker and did everything she could to advance herself in a male-dominated world. I'm happy to say that I have a newfound appreciation. I highly recommend this movie, so if you find yourself with a couple hours of free time, give it a watch. I think you'll like it. Okay, that's a wrap. Thank you for listening. This has been Episode 66 of Cinema Sunday. I'll be back next week to discuss another Oscar-winning film. Please tell your friends about this podcast. If you feel so inclined, you can like, follow, subscribe, and even post a review. That helps get Cinema Sunday heard by a wider audience. If you have a comment, a correction, or just want to tell me that I have shit taste, you can email me at cinemasunday at yahoo.com. The music for Cinema Sunday is appropriately titled So Happy. It is by Scott Holmes Music. I got it off of freemusicarchives.org, and the work is licensed under Creative Commons by NC 4.0. Links are provided in the bio, and if you happen to visit the Free Music Archive, they do take donations. So please be generous. Thanks, and see you next week.